I mean, we know this through the medical literature, stress meaning that like lifestyle stress is inflammatory to the body. Hey guys, welcome back to episode 65 of That's So Maven. I just got back from my trip to Toronto, which was fantastic. It is always nice to visit home, although to be honest, San Francisco really feels like home now, but it is so familiar to be in Toronto, and of course, we have so many friends and family who live there, so it's really nice to be back there and spend some time with them, and I think I might regret my request for the heat because it was ridiculously hot, so hot and humid, but it was nice to soak it up, hang out in Mama Maven's backyard, which she designed beautifully and take it all in. It's just so special to be there, and I know I will be back again sometime this summer because some of you guys were asking for a meetup, which I didn't plan because I was only there for a weekend this time, but I definitely want to do some kind of meetup next time I'm in Toronto. So if you guys want to see that, definitely let me know either on Instagram or in the tribe just so that I can get planning one because I do plan to be back in Toronto. I'm trying to embrace as much time as possible there while it's still summer because your girl does not like winter. But speaking of events, we do have a really fun event that's coming up in San Francisco. So if you guys live in the Bay Area, I would love to see you there. It is at Outdoor Voices on July 11th at Outdoor Voices San Francisco. That's in Hayes Valley. And we're going to be doing an intention setting and yoga flow together. So we're going to be talking about how to set intentions. I've run a session like this before in San Francisco. So if you attended that, it will be pretty similar to that one, as well as a yoga flow that will be built in as part of it. And you also get 15% off all Outdoor Voices apparel, which is pretty cool. I love Outdoor Voices, both because I love their clothing. I'm wearing their leggings right now, but also because they're so generous with their space and helping to build a community in San Francisco. So I'm just grateful for their support. And the event is totally free, so I'm going to include a link to it in the show notes if you guys would like to attend. I would love to see you there. I think there's a couple tickets left. There aren't a ton left, so definitely try and scoop one up while you can. And about today's episode, it's actually a return guest. So he was a very highly requested guest to come back on the show. I sent out a survey a couple of months ago asking you guys who you would like to hear from again and what some of your favorite episodes were, and his came up pretty frequently, and that is Dr. Will Cole. He was on episode 37. We talked about a ton of subjects from adrenal fatigue to hormone health, and we touched a little bit on inflammation, but we didn't go too deep into it, and so I thought I would bring him back on the show to discuss inflammation. So that's really going to be the focus of today's episode, we do jump into things like the microbiome, the MTHFR gene, which I've been hearing a lot about recently. We've talked about that a little bit on the show, but he actually breaks it down and explains what it is, how to know if you have it, what to do if you have it, and also all about just inflammation and what inflammation looks like in bodies and how inflammation isn't all bad. So I think he clears up a lot of myths and answers all my questions around inflammation. We probably could have gone on for much, much longer, but I had to cut us off. Otherwise, this would have been like a two-hour episode. And I also asked in the tribe if any of you guys had questions for Dr. Cole, and you guys had a ton of questions, so I kind of weaved them through the episode and then also included them at the end instead of doing 
our hot seat questions because he's already answered them before. So if you haven't listened to the episode with him, I believe it's episode 37. I encourage you to do that. But if not, you should, you know, get a full sense of who he is, what he's all about, what functional medicine is all about, and all about inflammation if you listen to today's episode. And I'm going to keep this short because it is a longer episode, but I am including a few notes at the end as well as who's coming up next week on the show. So stay tuned for that. And I will talk to you then. Enjoy. Hi, Will. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super pumped about us talking again. I know, me too. And people were really excited to hear you were coming back on the show. You were one of our most popular guests. I'm not surprised by that. Your episode, which was episode 37, is just a wealth of information. And yeah, I feel like I learned so much from that one. And I still have so many questions for you. So I'm glad to have you back on the show today. Yeah, me too. Awesome. So I know you kind of gave a a brief lowdown on who you are in the last episode, but just in case anyone hasn't heard that episode yet, do you want to just kind of fill people in on your background and and who you are? Yeah. uh, My name is Dr. Will Cole. Um, I'm a functional medicine practitioner. So um, I primarily have a virtual functional medicine practice. Most of our patients are seen via webcam consultation. um, And but I'm based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, my doctorate is from Southern California University of Health Sciences in LA or outside of Los Angeles. And my postdoctorate education and training is in functional medicine and clinical nutrition. So um, I'm one of MindBody Green. Uh, MindBody Green is one of their one of the largest uh, wellness websites in the world. I'm one of their course instructors and wellness experts, and I've written for Goop and for Bustle and. Reader's Digest, a lot of different publications. Um, But yeah, I kind of live and breathe functional medicine and primarily most of my week is consulting patients. But um, in my free time, I write about it. (laughs) So I never get, I never, I'm not doing something that has to do with this. So uh, yeah, that's basically in a nutshell what I do. Awesome. And for anyone who's not familiar with how functional medicine differs from conventional medicine, could you kind of just give a uh, a brief answer to what the difference is? Yeah. So it's uh, comparing and contrasting functional medicine with conventional medicine. We basically are in customized natural medicine based on the individual. So um, we're looking at these underlying root facets of someone's biochemistry based on labs. So it's kind of marrying the best of Western medicine and conventional medicine, which is labs and being evidence-based, and then the best of alternative, which is getting somebody healthy and not just giving them medications and saying, see you later. So we're kind of fusing both worlds together in functional medicine. So, um, you know, I've been doing this for about 10 years, but 10 years ago, not many people knew about it. Now the Cleveland Clinic has a functional medicine center, so you can't get more mainstream than that. So it's kind of um, a lot has happened in the last decade, and I've been you know, just on the ground doing this for 10 years now. Yeah, and I mean, I'm, I'm seeing it happen more often. I think sort of where there's a barrier is just time and you know, doctors just simply not having enough time with patients to be able to really get down to the root causes of a lot of issues. But... Uh, you know, I'm hoping that that's something that we might be able to change. I'm not sure what the answer is to that, but I know, you know, I've seen doctors where they're asking more about, you know, what my diet looks like and my lifestyle habits. And it's not just like, oh, here's the issue. Here's, you know, some medicine to treat it. Yeah, I agree. I think that honestly, I think that people, and this is really a testament to the power of the internet and the power of 
podcasts like yours that people are becoming more and more educated and they're challenging the conventional system. They want solutions and they want answers. And that's the, and honestly, this is a, we're talking about a big multi-trillion dollar industry that is the conventional medical system. And like any powerful industry, when they start seeing uh, another um, uh, movement that's happening that people want, they want to move where the money goes. So what's happening is more and more conventional systems are offering integrative and functional medicine uh, aspects to their care because patients want it and people want it and consumers want it. Um, but then to your point too, what has to happen is that those conventional doctors have to go to postdoctorate education because if they're trained conventionally, they're receiving about a weekend's worth worth of hours of nutritional training. I mean, you can get more on YouTube in an afternoon than what people are getting in all of their years of medical training. Um, so that is what the Institute for Functional Medicine or IFM is doing and other institutes that are doing where most of these doctors that are moving through IFM's training are conventionally trained in the hospitals, in the private practice settings, um, but they are seeking this out to get the patients well. The problem is, is that they oftentimes aren't even able to put into practice what they are learning in functional medicine because of what you said. They're overbooked and oversaturated and they don't have enough time to really give the patients the care that they need um, because the system's not set up for this sort of longer um, support that these cases need. You're not gonna solve their problems in a five minute appointment and it's just a lot more complicated. So most people are actually opening up like outside of the systems, um, these functional medicine practices to devote more quality time that's needed for these complicated cases. Definitely. And, you know, if that's something that you're able to get access to and, you know, you're struggling with some sort of health issue that maybe your doctor is not able to solve or maybe the treatment or the path to treatment is not necessarily what's in line with your values, then it's great that there are these options available for you know, whether it be, you know, an online consult or maybe, you know, you have a functional medicine doctor in the place where you live. Like, that's amazing. I love that we're seeing an increase in, in resources like this. And, and hopefully, you know, the entire system can eventually shift. But for now, you know, I, I feel good about the fact that people are becoming more knowledgeable about this option and are seeking it out. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So in the last episode, we focused a lot on thyroid health and hormone health, which I know is something that a lot of people are struggling with, especially, you know, hormone health. And it's, it's something that comes up a lot on the show, but I, I wanted to focus on something a little bit different today, which totally relates to hormones and thyroid health and basically everything, which is inflammation. And I feel like inflammation, it kind of seems like a buzzword because no one really knows what it means. And there's so many different ways in which it, it, it exerts itself. So you know, people are like, how can inflammation be responsible for everything from like acne to joint pain to digestion issues? Like how? Like how? So I, I feel like dedicating an episode to this topic, you know, can help kind of break down the information that's out there and also just like help people out because I feel like it's just, it's so confusing. Yeah, I agree. And it is one of those words that's a buzzy and it's used a lot flippantly, but it's like, well, what the heck does it even mean? And what can I do about it? I guess more importantly, um, and inflammation, like 
almost everything in our body is not inherently bad. It's just like the bacteria in our gut or our hormones or um, or inflammation. It is subject to the Goldilocks principle. You don't want it too high. You don't want it too low. You want it just right at the right time. So inflammation is an aspect of our immune system, which is our protector. It fights viruses and bacteria and pathogens and heals wounds. It does a lot of good things. We would all be gone if it wasn't for healthy, balanced inflammation levels. The problem, just like the bacteria in our gut or or our hormones, too much or too little is a problem. And the problem for most people in the West uh, is it's too much inflammation. It's it's the out of balance. It's, it's a breaking of that law or assault to the Goldilocks principle. And it's this chronic, low-grade, insidious, chronic inflammation that's really at play for a lot of different health problems. So it's like a forest fire going and burning in perpetuity. This is the problem for, for many problems. And it is, as you had said, it's the commonality between almost every chronic health problem that we face today as a Western society. And that's everything from skin issues like you mentioned, like acne or rosacea or rashes and things like that, but also gut problems and anxiety and depression and brain fog. Those are also inflammatory in nature. Uh, and um, the list goes on and on and on because it really, what it, if you kind of boil it down to, to the simplistic cellular level, what happens is that our cell, all of our cells are kind of wrapped with the cell membrane. It's this phospholipid membrane. And when we're talking about chronic systemic low-grade inflammation, basically this low-grade forest fire, what happens is that the cell membrane, this sort of barrier between the intracellular and the extracellular space in our body, basically what's inside our cell, it's the nucleus, it's the mitochondria, it's what we're made up of. If this membrane becomes more oxidized, more inflamed, that membrane, that membrane that's made of fat is less permeable. So what, what does that mean? It means that things, nutrients can't get inside of it and the byproducts of energy, because our cells are just like us on a macro level, when we eat food, we have to digest it and then we go to the bathroom. Our cell does the same thing. The byproducts of ATP or our cellular energy is is actually um, excrements or, or byproducts or waste of that energy. So we need to get rid of that. But if the cell membrane is less permeable, more oxidized, more inflamed, that those byproducts can't get out. And you have this sort of toxic, it's like if I lit a fire in my office and closed up all the windows and the cracks out of the door, there's, it's going to get smoky and I'm going to cough and I'm going to have a problem. That's what happens on a cellular level to varying degrees depending on what the patient's going through. So that what can that can do? It, it can trigger genetic predispositions because that's where our DNA is inside the cell. And it creates a whole host of problems because our body's interconnected. So if one area is not working, like let's say our hormonal system or our brain, then it can't communicate to the other systems of the body. And then you have this sort of ripple effect of one area impacting the other area. And then really that's kind of the simplistic way of kind of describing what's going on for most people's health problems, because it's not just one thing. If one problem, if one area in your body isn't working properly, that's going to impact uh, the other areas as well. Yeah, I mean, that totally makes sense. And and also just that like, it's so individualized. Like if you are, you know, dealing with inflammation, what it might look like on one person will look totally different on somebody else. So like, for me, I know, you know, I, I'm not I'm not 100% sure about how everything adds up, but I struggle with hormonal acne, 
And from what I, what I, through my own experimentation, what I found is that when I'm more stressed and when I'm dealing with, you know, too much on my plate or not making enough time for myself or, you know, meditating or whatever it is that I need in order to like feel calm and not overwhelmed, I break out. So like, would that be an example of like a, a lifestyle in terms of like stress having an effect on the inflammation in your body? Absolutely. Yeah. So there are physiological stressors, there's mental, emotional stressors. So hormonal imbalances is stressful to your body. Your body's not operating the way that it wants to, but also mental, emotional stress can also, I mean, we know this through the medical literature, stress, meaning that like lifestyle stress is inflammatory to the body. So if somebody is under stress, that's going to impact their brain adrenal axis and that's gonna cause cortisol fluctuations. And cortisol is again, it's the Goldilocks principle. Too much of it's not good, but too low of it's not good either. And cortisol is needed to balance inflammation levels. So if you have chronically high cortisol, what will end up happen is it'll end up being chronically low and that is not regulating inflammation properly. So cortisol is a potent uh, anti-inflammatory. So that's why when people are stressed, cortisol initially comes up, which isn't good for long. It'll cause problems. But then what's even worse in some ways is that cortisol being too low, chronic adrenal fatigue, chronic HPA axis, brain adrenal axis issues, that's inflammation run wild at that point because there's no or there's less checks and balances for the inflammation. Yeah, and you know, for me, it might look like hormonal acne. But what are some other ways in which uh, inflammation might might you know show up in somebody else? Like, I, I feel like it exhibits so differently in every person. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we can kind of work our way from our head to our toes. I think if you think about brain inflammation, brain fog is is linked to uh, pro-inflammatory cytokine, basically pro-inflammatory cell activity. So if someone just has trouble thinking of words and they are they feel sort of not really engaged in the present moment brain fog is sadly ubiquitous but yet so people so many people settle for it because it is so common um, brain fog and I would say fatigue which oftentimes go hand in hand so this mental and physical fatigue are pro-inflammatory states many times um, and also the impact that our brain is having with our endocrine system so our brain is the sort of the CEO of our hormonal system so you have the brain adrenal axis, the brain thyroid axis, the brain ovarian axis. And if our brain's inflamed, low-grade inflammation, that is going to impact the communication line with the hormonal system. So it's this upstream impact on the downstream ripple effect of our hormones. So if our brain's not working well because of inflammation, that's going to impact the communication line with the endocrine system or hormones. But then you talk about the, the pathway of the hormones. If you have uh, cellular inflammation, what's going back to the, that cell membrane, on the cell membrane are hormonal receptor sites. So you have thyroid receptor sites and insulin receptor sites. These are hormones that can be blunted and dulled. So someone can have, because of inflammation, thyroid resistance or leptin resistance, which is like a weight loss hormonal pattern, or insulin resistance, which is about 50% of the United States, sadly. So you have these because of inflammation, receptor sites 
to hormones being blunted. Um, and that's just the brain and the hormones. But then you can go into the muscles uh, with muscle pain and joint and joint pain and digestive issues. So IBS, irritable bowel syndrome or chronic constipation or the more end stage problems to like Crohn's and celiac disease, ulcerative colitis. These are inflammatory issues too. So you can see here that, I mean, all the things I just mentioned, that's a lot of people. That's millions and millions and millions. That's the majority of Americans, sadly, um, that I just mentioned, just with those few issues. And then we know that this is more far reaching than, than even what I mentioned. Yeah. How do you know if like, you know, the root cause of what you're struggling with has to do with inflammation? Cause sometimes it doesn't, you know, sometimes it's as simple as like you, you, there's something anatomically, well, that's not simple at all, but there's something like anatomically wrong, or maybe it's yeah. just like, it's just, it's n not something related to inflammation. Like how yeah. do you know the difference? Yeah. I think that even if some, even if we're saying, look, there's an, uh, an inflammatory component to justify everything, everything thing that uh, someone's going through, I think the bigger question is what's causing my inflammation? And that's different from person to person. We don't want to boil inflammation down and we'll say, we'll just deal with the inflammation and that's it. We have to say, okay, well, why the inflammation? Why is the inflammation there in the first place? And that's where it gets muddy. That's where it gets individual. That's where it gets can get um, very specific to what's fueling it. And it's normally not one thing. It's normally a com combination of a lot of different things. But um, some things that I would look for to see if inflammation is a problem for you. If you want to just be basic, anybody can have their doctor run some inflammatory biomarkers. So some things to think about, uh, and anybody's doctor can run them. I mean, we run them for patients all over the place, but you don't need a functional medicine doctor to run it. Uh, C-reactive protein uh, or high sensitivity C-reactive protein. This is an inflammatory biomarker. We all have it, but high levels of it are linked to pro-inflammatory states. So the American Heart Association, the CDC, they use it to like gauge heart attack and stroke risks. But you really anything can spike. Any inflammatory problem can spike CRP. So the functional range for CRP would be under one. And another inflammatory marker that you can run on a blood test would be homocysteine. Homocysteine and high levels of it are linked to brain inflammation, in basically increased blood-brain barrier permeability. So as somebody can have leaky gut syndrome, they can have what's called leaky brain syndrome, which is basically increased permeability of the blood-brain barrier, your sort of brain's protective sheath. Uh, and homocysteine levels that are above seven are linked, it's outside of the functional range, and it's linked to increased blood-brain barrier permeability. Um, like people like Dr. Brednizin at UCLA, he's doing a lot of research to Alzheimer's and cognitive decline and linking that to homocysteine levels that are high as one facet to these health problems. It's obviously more complicated than just that, but it's a pro-inflammatory problem and it's also linked to heart attack and stroke and other inflammatory problems. Um, and then a third one, as far as inflammation is concerned, is looking at ferritin. So ferritin is also a way to gauge stored iron, but um, ferritin levels that are spiked and really high above 250, it's considered an acute phase reactant, which just means uh, in states of inflammation, ferritin can spike. So it, those are three basic tests that pretty much anybody can do. And if you if the doctor is coding them properly, they can be covered by insurance um, to kind of get a good gauge on where your inflammation levels are at. It's not 
super detailed. It's not looking at the microbiome and the impact that the gut can have on inflammation. It's not looking at all these sort of intricate things that we would look at in functional medicine. But if anybody's sort of just wanting a gauge for where they're at, those are three tests they can have run. Awesome. Like that's so great that, you know, that's something that, you know, potentially is accessible for a lot of people, even just to like help tell which direction to go in. It doesn't necessarily give you like an answer, like this is your issue and here's how to fix it, but at least it can help you kind of get down to the bottom of things, which brings me to my next question, which is, you know, say you're struggling with something like uh, a good example. I feel like you know, I'm using examples from my own life, but for me, I have really bad seasonal allergies. And if you live in California, that means year round allergies. So that's something that I've been struggling with, you know, pretty much since I moved here. And from what I understand, inflammation can be a huge trigger for allergies. So let's say I figure out, you know, my body is struggling with inflammation. It's exhibiting itself through seasonal allergies. What are some ways that I can get down to the bottom of it? Like how, how am I going to treat it from the perspective of, of inflammation? So I would, for allergies specifically, um, and really just to open up the conversation maybe to other people as well, is that a lot of inflammatory issues begin in the gut. And I don't want to oversimplify it again. I think it's the microbiome is one piece of the puzzle, but it's oftentimes a big piece of the puzzle. Um, and with allergies specifically, the microbiome can have really, the ripple effect can be strong from things in the, going on in the gut. So looking at bacterial imbalances in the microbiome, looking at intestinal permeability or leaky gut syndrome, looking at histamine intolerance, looking at um, candida overgrowth, uh, looking at small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. These are things that may be on your microbiome test that we would have to fix because what is happening with allergies is sort of an immune-mediated response, this hyper-inflammatory response. We have to kind of calm down that response and balance out that microbiome. So oftentimes... The problem is in the microbiome when it comes to allergies, but it also is an underlying piece of the puzzle for many people's chronic health problems. And that's one of those things that, like on those basic inflammatory tests that I mentioned, this microbiome, like gut problems can spike those inflammatory proteins, but it's nonspecific. So it's basically going to say, yes, there's inflammation in my body. Yes, it's a baseline. So you can compare and contrast that if you're making some positive you know, wellness changes in your life, but it's not telling you it's gut centric. So I think that you know, if anybody wants to dig deeper, they're going to want to run like more functional medicine labs um, to kind of see the landscape of the microbiome. And for somebody in your position with allergies, I would look there as sort of the low hanging fruit of um, at least ruling it out as being a facet to your allergies. You know, it's really interesting that you say that because, you know, it must be about eight months now, but I was diagnosed with SIBO. Um, and so I was treated for SIBO and, you know, my digestive issues all went away, but then my allergies have gotten worse. So I wonder, you know, if maybe there's sort of this like pendulum effect where, you know, I, I basically had to clear out all of, all of the bacteria in my gut. And it's been kind of a process of building it back up because, you know, when you treat SIBO or you don't necessarily, I mean, I personally made the choice to take an antibiotic for it rather than doing the more holistic route, which is totally fine either way, no judgment here. Uh, but for me, that just felt like the right response. But I have noticed that my allergies have gotten way worse this year. Yeah, and that's a great point. I mean, knowing that you have SIBO, I mean, definitely many people with SIBO can have these sort of 
um, inflammatory reactions, allergies being one of them, not to say everybody with SIBO has allergies, but it's commonly associated. It's definitely one thing that I would look for for somebody with allergies. But I mean, to your point, I think that's an amazing point is that antibiotics, which is a treatment for SIBO, um, it can, it's going to blast out and kill off the good guys too. So that's going to definitely put can, it's going to reshift the balance of the microbiome and it's killing off some of the good guys while longer term, you can re-inoculate those and start rebuilding the good bacteria, which will take time. Um, some of the regulatory um, bacteria for your immune system that was maybe already weakened because of the allergies, but became more weakened with antibiotic use. So that's one thing that would come to mind with a case like that. But when you're looking at the timeline, whether somebody's taking an antibiotic conventionally or maybe an herbal antimicrobial, uh, the gut takes time to heal. The gut takes about 18 to 24 months to really heal. So sometimes on that healing journey, things can get a little bit flared before they calm back down because you're really doing some amazing immunomodulatory, basically reshifting that microbiome. So it's a snapshot of where you're at now. My assumption is the more you're working on gut health longer term, those things will continue to improve. That's what my experience is. Totally. And this actually brings me to a question that was asked in the tribe. So I, I asked the tribe for some questions that they had and I'm going to be kind of weaving them in instead of doing the, the hot seat questions at the end. And, um, and so Erica asked about your thoughts on gut health and what role a daily probiotic plays or, you know, benefits of consuming kombucha on top of that or in place of a probiotic, like how, you know, I'm thinking more from the context of inflammation and its connection to the gut. How does, you know, taking a probiotic or eating or drinking fermented foods, how can that help improve your digestion and in turn decrease inflammation? So the... Microbiome is about 75% of the immune system. When you're talking about inflammatory problems or autoimmune issues, these are pro-inflammatory states and where the predominance of the immune system resides is in the microbiome. So every food that we eat is going to either help or hurt the the governor of our immune system, which is the microbiome. Um, and probiotic foods uh, are filled with different colonies of bacteria. Um, so when I say fermented foods or probiotic foods, that's sauerkraut and kimchi and kombucha and kvass and these type of things. Um, what they do, they're basically bringing new colonies of bacteria to the microbiome. So our microbiome is upwards, depending on the study that you look at, it's about 100 trillion bacteria. That's a lot of bacteria. So to put that in perspective, we have about 10 trillion human cells. So we are all about 10 times more bacteria than human. Um, and the way that uh, fermented foods do, they're kind of kind of reintroducing new bacteria to the gut or um, basically in instructing the microbiome in a positive way because you have beneficial bacteria that are basically it's not like grass seed like if you plant grass seed it's going to grow it's not the way that these typically work what works and what research is showing is that it's sort of encouraging healthy microbe proliferation and investing in a healthy microbiome economy as it were so these are all different colony forming units or sort of neighborhoods of bacteria in this big microbiome metropolis and the foods that we eat like fermented foods or probiotics will kind of encourage healthy bacterial diversity and bacterial diversity just like in our world diversity is a good thing diversity in our microbiome is good so the more robust and diverse 
the microbiome is, it's associated with greater health. The less diverse um, a back microbiome is, it's associated with worse health problems or poorer health. Um, so that's really the, the goal of a lot of these fermented foods. And I would kind of open up the conversation beyond just the probiotic foods to just plant foods as a whole, because plant foods are the primary primary fuel for the microbiome or what's called prebiotics or the fiber basically from these non-starchy vegetables help to basically give its it's gut food, it's bacteria food. So the bacteria eat what we eat and they ferment this food and they produce metabolites that are called short chain fatty acids, which are anti-inflammatory. Um, so things like butyrate uh, is a potent anti-inflammatory. It's also good for mitochondrial health and it's good for a healthy immune system. It fights cancer, it does a lot of things because basically it calms inflammation levels down. But this is a product that our bacteria makes from the foods that we eat. Um, so and interestingly enough, um, butyrate, that short chain fatty acid is chemically related to beta hydroxybutyrate, which is the main ketone. You know, everybody's talking about the ketogenic diet. Butyrate in our gut is related to beta hydroxybutyrate, which is that main uh, ketone out of the ketogenic diet. Oh, interesting. So I am kind of curious to extend beyond just like probiotic foods and, and obviously like plants are amazing for our health. But are there specific foods that are great for targeting inflammation? Yeah, I mean, the my favorite anti-inflammatories and favorite, I mean, I've seen really good results in patients' lives, in my own life, and the clinical research um, would be curcumin, uh, turmeric, which most people in the wellness world that are interested in this stuff are aware of it. Um, I, I'm a fan of this sort of blend of different uh, turmeric oils and curcuminoid oils, basically all these potent uh, aspects of turmeric, the plant, the, 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 the herb, the spice, uh, is um, – it's called BMC 95. So basically it's this big science nerd, uh, nerd name for um, this blend of curcuminoids, which are the potent anti-inflammatory aspects of the plant turmeric. So um, basically BMC 95, it's really good. A lot of research to back it up. Um, and it's something that I use um, in my life. And something called terostilbene. Uh, terostilbene is spelt with a T, or sorry, with a, with a P. It's a silent um, Tara still being if someone wants to Google it. Um, but basically it is resveratrol's like super strong cousin and it's a lot stronger than resveratrol and it is uh, another anti-inflammatory that I like. And those are like two like natural medicines that I like to, to balance out inflammation. And again, this is about balancing inflammation. This is not about suppressing inflammation. That's not good. That's what like immunodeficiency people that have immune problems that are too low, that's not good either. We're talking about balancing out inflammation levels. So we're talking about curcuminoids and terostilbene and it calming inflammation. It's not suppressing uh, inflammation to unhealthy levels. It's about balancing it going back to this Goldi that Goldilocks principle. Yeah, those are two things that come to mind. So I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, but terostilbene, is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah you got it. Is yeah. that found in, in specific foods or would that be like a supplement? 
Uh, it's typically in supplements, but it is in different foods. It's in like uh, grapes and uh, like antioxidant-rich foods. But basically what they do in sup in a supplement form, they're standardizing it in high concentration. So whereas you're going to get some through foods, and food is primary. You cannot you know supplement your way out of a poor diet. But the um, goal of the natural medicines is to standardize it, get higher doses of it for a more powerful therapeutic effect. That makes sense. So, you know, for, for someone who wants to maybe make some changes in their diet specifically, besides, you know, adding more turmeric to their diet, are there other things that they can focus on? Like whether it be, you know, increasing their fat intake or, you know, consuming bone broth. I know that bone broth is super anti-inflammatory. Are there like specific things, you know, in addition to maybe taking some supplements to help decrease their inflammation, what are some foods that, that they can yeah. focus on or add to their diet? Yeah. So, I mean, one general way that you can do from food standpoint is decrease the amount of sugar and the foods that turn into sugar, which is such a, you know, maybe people are like, oh, no, duh, we know this. But like it's it amazes me, even the healthy real food uh, sugar uh I would just be mindful of that. And we all have our own tolerance to sugar. Some people can handle more carbohydrates. Some people can handle less of it. So it's about finding your carb sweet spot. But I think in general, us lowering carbohydrates to at least 150 grams a day. But some people could do better with lowering it even more than that or even rounds of it. Maybe like I recommend for um, some people did lower even below 50 grams for a while, like eight weeks, just to drive inflammation levels down. And then, well, you can't just eat less food all the time. So you're going to want to increase healthy fats, to your point. Uh, anti uh, Healthy fats are very anti-inflammatory and balancing inflammation levels. So those are going to be good, uh, healthy omega fats, like from wild-caught fish or nuts and seeds, um, good uh, um, polyunsaturated fats, like omega fats, monounsaturated fats, like nuts and seeds and uh, olive oil and avocado oil and avocados. So, and good sat healthy fat saturated fats as well. So like coconut oil would be one of them and, and grass-fed ghee. Those are all really anti-inflammatory because what? Why is it anti-inflammatory? Well, our immune system needs healthy fats to be to function properly. Uh, and they are every cell of our body, going back to that cell membrane, is made of fat. And our brain is 60% fat. Um, so every cell of our body needs fat to function properly. And healthy fats from real foods also include fat-soluble vitamins. So vitamins A and D and K2, those are also really important when it comes to a healthy, balanced immune system, which again, balances out inflammation levels. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's something where I've been trying to incorporate more healthy fats into my diet. I'm someone who likes to focus more on the things that I can add in rather than like things that I might decrease or take out. It just helps me have a better relationship with food. But for me, focusing on getting in more healthy fats has been super helpful. And just sort of, it's a small change that can like shift things. Like rather than just having like some toast with my salad, I'll have like some avocado toast or, you know, rather than using this regular dressing that I have, like just using olive oil. And so there's, there's so many ways where you can just kind of focus a little bit more on that. And I, I find that personally to be really, really helpful. Yeah, definitely. And I, I just, to your point, I think in general, that is a major facet to everything that I do in my work is having the person starting with a healthy relationship with food, because I think from there will flow healthy action. So if you 
Uh, I think we talked about this on the last episode that I was on, but basically you cannot heal a body you hate. And I think out of that self-love and loving your body enough to nourish it with good foods and eat into your full and be well satiated, this is where a thriving health resides. And I think that um, all the things we're talking about is not about becoming obsessive about food, but it's really is saying, okay, what what does my body love and what does my body hate? And of course, it's not if something doesn't make you feel good, it's that's not depriving yourself or, or, or dieting. This is just I I want to feel good more than I, you know, more than I don't. So it's focusing on those foods that make you feel great. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So something that I wanted to ask you about, because I've been hearing more about it, it's something we've touched on on the podcast before, but didn't go into too much detail, and that's the MTHFR gene mutation. So I've been seeing a lot more about this, and I would love if you could kind of give a breakdown about what it is and how that relates to inflammation. Great question. So MTHFR, it, it looks like an acronym for a swear word, um, but it's it's not. It is the acronym for the enzyme, actually for the gene that makes the enzyme that converts folic acid into folate. So sort of backing up why that is even important, it has to do with methylation. So methylation is this big biochemical superhighway. It happens a billion times every second in our body. So it makes our brain healthy. It makes neurotransmitters like serotonin. It makes our gut healthy. It makes detoxification pathways happen. It protects us from cancer. It Methylation is super duper important. That's the technical term for it. <laughs> but basically it is just, it's if, if methylation is not working well, you're not working well, I'm not working well, no one's working well when we have methylation impairment. So we can have epigenetic stressors to methylation, meaning if someone's smoking or if they're not taking care of themselves, they're not sleeping well at night, that can, that's going to stress out methylation, um, and that's epigenetic. That is, um, you through someone's lifestyle choices, they are stressing out those biochemical pathways. But there's also genetic aspects to methylation that we all have, and it's all unique. And this goes back to the bigger point of functional medicine, of really seeing the individual as the individual. And um, we have a number of different genes that govern methylation pathways. MTHFR is the most famous one. It's the Beyonce of methylation. But there's a lot of different methylation genes that, that govern different aspects of that methylation superhighway. So specifically with MTHFR, it is, again, the gene that makes the enzyme that converts folic acid into folate. Well, why is that important? Well, folate has to be activated in our, this is a B vitamin, basically, that is a methyl donor. It's a carbon-hydrogen group. It's CH3, one carbon, three hydrogen. And this uh, methyl group helps to recycle homocysteine down. Going back to that inflammatory protein that we talked about at the top of the conversation, homocysteine above seven is not good. It's outside of the functional range. It's pro-inflammatory. It's not good for our brain. It's not good for our heart. It's not good for systemic inflammation at large. So we need to recycle homocysteine down. And one of the ways that we do that is from the activity of the MTHFR gene. So each one of these methylation uh, genes that govern methylation, you can have either have one or two mutations. You can have a heterozygous or a homozygous mutation. So if someone has one mutation, not just MTHFR, but a number of different genes, that's going to inhibit the gene slightly. If two mutations will inhibit even more. So one is like a yellow light and two mutations like a red light where that gene is 
inhibited. It's not functioning the way that it should be. So we each get one of these genes from our parents, one from our mom, one from our dad. And that determines uh, somebody's methylation, um, single nucleotide polymorphisms, basically that are called SNPs or SNPs. And, um, and we all have this sort of unique code from a methylation standpoint that determines our predisposition for health problems. Again, this is not predestining like a predestination on somebody that if they have these mutations, they're destined to get something. That's a really old, antiquated way of looking at genetics. What researchers are looking at is epigenetics as being the, by all means, the majority of the cause of the problems. But Genetics is a component to it to varying degrees. Um, it's about a third of the autoimmune puzzle. It's genetics and methylation impairments are a part of that. Um, so what that means is that, and maybe just look from a biological, like a human history standpoint, our genetics haven't changed in 10,000 years. But the, yet the rise of chronic health problems that we're seeing today are growing by leaps and bounds while our genetics haven't changed. So these methylation impairments have been around for a long time. So the variable isn't so much the MTHFR mutation, it's the amount of stress that we're putting under our mutations, our, our, our mutations under. So it's, it's, it's a mixture of looking at what we're doing in our life, but also there's some people that are genetically can't tolerate as much stress as the next person. So for example, if, if someone's you know, smoking a couple packs a day, um, some people can't handle that, while some people can. Some people can detox from that, some people can't. Some people can smoke cigarettes their whole life and live a long life to their 90 and and never get any problem from it. It doesn't make smoking healthy. It's just some people have the genetic adaptive they can they can detox well and clear these things out. Some people can't. Some people will never smoke a day in their life and get lung cancer. But we have to look at basically the analogy that I use is like a cup. If some people have big cups, some people have small cups, but the more mutations you have, that diminishes the size of your cup and the amount of stressors that you can fill your cup with. So MTHFR is one aspect of it, but it's associated with uh, heart attack and stroke. It's associated with different autoimmune issues, different methylation impairments are linked to anxiety and depression and OCD and things like that. Um, uh, but I mean, just to make it personal, I have a double mutation uh, at the location of the um, of MTHFR that is more a problem. And but I have autoimmune conditions on both sides of my family, so it makes sense. Um, so I have to do what I can to mitigate those risk factors to support that genetic weakness because I can't change my DNA, but I can do what I can to to support that genetic weakness because I know my body's not that good at methylating in that way. So what are some ways that you could support your body if you do have the mutation? So what I would do uh, if somebody has a mutation, uh, MTHFR mutation, you're going to want to support methylation in the way that the best thing you can do through foods would be green leafy vegetables. Uh, those are going to be like non-starch like spinach and kale and things like that. Uh, and also sulfur-rich vegetables like onions and garlic and asparagus and cabbage. The sulfur groups um, help with methylation as well. Broccoli sprouts are one of the best ways to do that too. Um, and then I would say from a bioavailability standpoint, meaning what your body can utilize, wild caught fish are a good source of bioavailable B, B vitamins, uh, grass fed beef and beef liver um, actually. So those are all um, really rich in B vitamins, some plant-based options, some non-plant-based options for people to support methylation pathways. And then 
if someone has a double mutation, I would recommend supplementing with methylated B vitamins too, because oftentimes we're not eating enough of the food. So this is sort of a, uh, supporting that genetic weakness on a daily basis. Awesome. I feel like you just like cleared that all up for me. I was so confused. I've just been hearing so much about it lately. And yeah, I, yeah, you just answered that really, really well. So thank <laughs> you. Um, yeah. So my next question is, you know, I know how much you also focus on mental health and supporting your emotional well-being and, and how it plays a role in your overall health and well-being. From an inflammation perspective, like I know we had talked about stress, but even, you know, you're, you're encouraging positive affirmations and meditation and these other ways of supporting your health. Like I know you can't necessarily meditate your way out of, you know, an inflammatory condition, but how, how can you support your body, you know, besides, you know, what you, what you make in the kitchen, but in terms of just like your emotional and mental well-being? Yeah, and that is one thing that I see oftentimes because most of my patients, by the time they get to me, they're eating way better than most Americans um, and they're still struggling with health problems. So yes, we have to look at things like methylation impairments or microbiome issues or hormonal imbalances. All that stuff needs to be dealt with. But oftentimes we overlook and we should not look at the mind-body component to this and someone's relationship with food. So I think that in our space of wellness, sometimes it's like too much information. It's like Dr. Google and this endless pit vortex of conflicting information where people are really stressed about food. And that is just not where we need to be going with this. And I think sometimes it's just being more simple and taking it back to the basics and unlearning a lot of this stuff because stress is not good for our health. It's pro-inflammatory. So oftentimes I tell patients like, set down the Google for like a little bit, just focus on keeping things simple and let us lead you. Um, and having that support system and structure is quite cathartic for somebody who's trying to manage this themselves. Um, so, you know, I would say having a good support system, like basically out of what I said, having a good support system. And if the information that you're learning is overwhelming and stressing you out, information's fantastic. I love an informed patient and an informed person. But if it's like creating more stress and anxiety in your heart, then you need to like back off a little bit and uh, create some boundaries for you and your learning because that stress, while well-intentioned because you want to learn about your health, it's actually feeding the problem. Um, so uh, that's not an easy solution at all um, because it's this, 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 this juggle between learning but then learning too much. And I think that um, you know, mindfulness, meditation, present moment awareness, these are definitely things that need to be put beyond talking points and buzzwordies through sort of sounding, sounding things, but actually really implementing a strong, consistent practice to, for everybody to do to varying degrees, because it's, it's really the cornerstone of healthy decisions. Cause I think if you are present and you are, uh, are really in tune with your body out of that will come healthy actions and knowing your intrinsic self-worth will flow healthy actions too. So if we see ourselves like a Tesla uh, that we are instead of the old junker, how are we going to treat ourselves? How are we going to fuel our body? How are we going to take care of ourselves? So I think that that has to be the genesis for everything that we eat and every activity that we do. Because I mean, maybe it's not food for this person. Maybe it's overworking out in the gym because they're basically punishing their body through working out or punishing their body through dieting. This 
cannot be, there's no home for this in wellness. We have to kind of use this cool information that we're talking about, but it has to be fused with grace. And I think that has to be the major message for anything that we're talking about. Oh, I'm just like sitting here nodding my head like, yes, it's so true. I feel like sort of mental and, and emotional health is like the last thing on the list. It's like the last problem to tackle, but I, I feel like it needs to be flipped. Like you can't make conscious decisions for your body that, you know, actually support it if you're disconnected from your mental and emotional well-being. You just can't. Totally. So yeah. I want to hit some of these questions that were asked in the THM tribe because I, I threw it out to them. I knew I didn't want to go through the hot seat questions again, even though your answers were great. But I will refer people to episode 37 to hear those. But I did want to kind of bring in some questions from the tribe. And the first one is from Melanie. And this is also a question for me um, because I can totally relate to it, which is hormonal acne. And obviously, we discussed inflammation. But she was saying that she had cut out dairy but didn't see any kind of difference. What are some places that she can look to try and help to improve her skin? So I would look at, um, I mean, when you're dealing with dairy and the impact it can have on your hormones or any food, you're going to want to look at the microbiome there. So that that's a something to consider. But since you didn't see any results from it, I would look at a more detailed hormonal pan panel. Um, so a lab that I really get a lot of information and kind of make um, some action steps to, for people to change in their life is um, a test called a Dutch test. It's basically urine and saliva test. It's a sort of expanded hormonal panel. Um, and it's a way for us to gauge all the estrogen metabolites and all the progesterone components too, and cortisol and testosterone, which can be associated with different hormonal acne patterns as well. So looking at like PCOS and endometriosis and things like that. So I would look at hormones and their metabolites in a more detailed fashion if you've made some healthy choices in your life but are still seeing it, there may be something where maybe you have to support progesterone function more than you have been, or maybe you need to support detoxification pathways. Maybe there's too much estrogen, you need to be clearing that out, or maybe testosterone's too high and you need to, to clear that out. So it depends on the individual and what's fueling that, but in healthcare, like hormonal acne, just because something looks like a duck doesn't mean it's a duck. It may be you know, a goose or like a duck imposter. So we wanna kind of look at what's causing that because you could have a dozen, 50, 100 people with quote unquote hormonal acne, but what's fueling that underneath the surface is different from person to person. So I think that looking at hormones in a more expanded way is one idea. And the other idea was be looking at the microbiome and the impact that can have, because you have what's called the gut, we all have this, the gut skin axis and the impact that the microbiome can have on our skin. And oftentimes our skin is a reflection of what's going on in the microbiome. Totally. And you know what I found, just to add my own personal touch on this, because I'm really good at doing that, but um, I found that when I went to my, this was a couple of years ago, but when I went to my doctor, they ran a panel on my hormones and everything looked normal. But then when I went to go see a naturopath or, you know, I didn't have access to a functional medicine doctor, but I went to see a naturopath and they ran a bunch of other tests and found that even though everything came back normal from my doctor, there, you know, the balance between them was off. And so, you know, doing something that like goes a bit deeper and looks at what the balances look like rather than just like, oh, you're within normal range. Like that can be really helpful. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And you're right. It's just, it's not just the amount. And many times people are running just the blood um, protein bound hormones and not looking at what's getting into the cells. And like you're saying, the balance between estrogen and progesterone, um, it's super important. And um, we have to look at in context with the whole and not just hang our hat on one number and say, well, at 8 a.m. when I went and got my progesterone tested, it was normal. Well, where is it at the rest of the day? Um, we have to kind of look at the, a little bit more thoroughly. Totally. So we're going to kind of shift gears here with Kelsey's question, which is about liver enzymes. Um, she's been dealing with elevated enzymes since September, and they've been going up and down, and no one seems to know why. She's done about 20 blood tests, and and some come back elevated or off, and, and sometimes, you know, they're just fluctuating a lot. Do you know what might be, you know, just obviously you're not here with her, but like what are some things that feel feel like might be the cause of fluctuating liver enzymes yeah good good question so there's a, a it's like the check engine light you know something's underneath the hood misfiring but you don't really know what it is but i would say this is uh some things that come to mind and maybe just to rule out or make sure that your doctor is ruling out um is um the most common is fatty liver disease so um ast alt and ggt these are three like liver enzymes that she's probably referring to but um, the most common is um fatty liver disease and again every lab is a snapshot in time so there may be sometimes when it's normal and sometimes that it's not um, but i would look at serum and Insulin. Um, so insulin levels that are high can uh, be a sign of insulin resistance. So the body's basically trying to get more glucose in the cell, but it's not able to because of insulin resistance, which we talked about previous. Those receptor sites are blunted. So uh, you have hyperinsulinemia or excess insulin in the blood. Uh, you can also run uh, glucose or like a fasting blood sugar and an A1C. Uh, and on our blog, if you go to drworldcole.com, there's the functional ranges for all those numbers. You can know and print that off and give it to your doctor and say, or you don't need to give it to your doctor, but just so you know what the optimal range for those things are, because they're not going to be necessarily the labs reference range, which is based on people who go to labs. It's, they're not uh, who you want to be comparing your numbers to. So you want to look at your number and comparing it to the functional range. And triglycerides. So triglycerides um, are often spiked too whenever somebody has elevated liver uh, enzymes because basically the, the body doesn't have anywhere to put the blood sugar. So it starts storing the blood sugar as circulating fats or triglycerides. So this is metabolic syndrome. The reason why I mentioned this first is because it's like 50% of the United States it's, and, and it can spike liver enzymes at times. So that's that. Uh, but the other things to think about would be any medications you're taking that can spike liver enzymes and also toxicity. Heavy metal toxicity can also spike liver enzymes. So you'd want to measure um, heavy metals uh, and seeing if it's not an acute um, uh, toxicity, but a chronic uh, heavy metals can spike liver enzymes as well. So those are, those are the three most common things that I find clinically for spiked liver enzymes. Cool. Well, hopefully that will be helpful to you, Kelsey, and you figure out what's going on. And I think I'm going to end with this last question because I feel like this one is it's kind of you know, has a lot of pieces to it, but Morgan is interested in thoughts on functional Lyme disease treatment and, you know, what that might look like. Yeah. So Lyme disease is, Lyme disease is called the great mimicker um, because it looks like a lot of things and a lot of things look like it as well. So one of the 
kind of ways that I uh, gauge Lyme disease is in our application when patients um, have a consultation with me, I have them fill out a Horowitz score and people can fill it out for themselves actually online. I think there's probably different resources online, but it's the Horowitz Lyme score. Dr. Horowitz is one of the leading Lyme literate doctors in the country. Uh, and he has, it's a good sub-diagnostic way, meaning it's not a lab, but it's at least pointing to if the lab is even relevant for you. Um, any, anything about 45 on that score shows that maybe you should look and rule out definitively from a lab. And there's really no definitive. The labs are poor when it comes to Lyme disease. But as the best labs that we can run, we should run whenever you have a high Horowitz score. Um, and um, chronic Lyme is abysmally underdiagnosed. I mean, many people um, fall to the cracks of this problem because of poor testing uh, and the time that we see today. We are at the time today where we really have amazing advancements in labs and we run the best that there are, but when it comes to Lyme disease, there's just no fantastic lab. Um, so I, we run the best out there uh, and there are blood tests that we would run and these are functional medicine labs to check it. So we do the best we can and it's far above and beyond what the standard model of care is doing, which is pretty abysmal. They run a Western blot test and it's notorious poor when it comes to detecting chronic Lyme disease. Um, but again, going back to the genetic epigenetic component, there have always been ticks and there have always been tick bacteria like Borrelia. Um, the variability isn't so much uh, the like basically the explosion of Lyme disease is not just the tick bacteria because there are people with antibodies to tick bacteria that have no symptoms. And there's people that have antibodies and they have tons of symptoms and it's, it's a real thing. So is the variable to me isn't just the, the only, like it's just the tick bacteria and that's what's causing all your problems. I see it as being a component to a lot of other different factors and it can be the straw that broke the camel's back, the tipping point for some people based on their methylation impairments that we just talked about or their chronic gut problems or other chronic like viral infections. Um, it can be filling up that cup, so to speak, and it's overflowing because of the tick bacteria. Um, but just to answer the question specifically, you're going to have to get antimicrobials. Um, and that's not a simple answer, um, but uh, just a blend of different herbal antibiotics is a, are a good way to decrease the bacterial load that chronic Lyme disease can have. Uh, on the immune system, but you have to be multi-pronged when it comes to Lyme disease and you have to deal with the gut component, you have to deal with co-infections, you have to deal with the viral uh, inf infection, oftentimes Epstein-Barr virus, EBV can be a, a reactivated because it's opportunistic when the immune system's stressed out viral infections can reactivate too. So it's dealing with all that stuff. It's dealing with biofilm. So it's not an easy answer, but I actually did write, write a good summary on our website. So if someone wants to kind of get good clinical data on different ideas from a general perspective, um, from a functional medicine perspective, it's on our website. Awesome. Thank you for sharing all of that information. There were many more questions, but I got to cut us off for time, unfortunately, but I guess I'll just have to have you back on the show for a third time. <laughs> I third would love time, that. Third time's a charm. Yeah, um, yeah. But I know you have a new book coming out, so do you mind just sharing a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm super excited about it. It's called Ketotarian. It's sort of this amalgamation of the best of the plant-based and ketogenic world, just seeing all 
the patients I've seen and seeing the best of both ways of eating, I thought, okay, let's just fuse them together and really give good plant-based ketogenic recipes and ideas. And it's all fused with this conversation of loving your body enough to fuel it with good food medicine and becoming a just a fine-tuned machine where you have clear thinking and decreased inflammation levels and feeding your gut microbiome. All the stuff we've talked about in this conversation is what I try to fuse in Ketotarian. It's coming out this August. There's a lot of pretty pictures when it comes to recipes and doing it simplistically. Um, I'm super excited about it. Awesome. Well, I will definitely put in my pre-order and I encourage all of you guys out there to do the same you're obviously a wealth of knowledge. I feel like I learned so much having you on the show and I'm just so grateful to to be able to pick your brain and also have you answer questions from the tribe because I know how helpful they find these episodes. Thanks for having me. I, I could talk about this all day, so thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Is it just me or did anybody else take notes while listening to the episode? I did it when I re-listened to the episode, but I... Just he has so much information. So trying to take it all in, piece it all together. I have so much to learn from Dr. Cole. I'm sure you guys do as well. And I'm just grateful he was willing to come back on the show today to answer even more of my questions. So if you guys want to hear from him again, definitely let me know. The Tribe is a great place to do that. And if you haven't joined the tribe already, it's just facebook.com slash group slash THM tribe. It's so cool to hear from you guys, to hear which episodes resonate with you, the blog posts you guys are loving, recipes you've made, meetups you're doing. I just love the group so, so much. It really is like my pride and joy and just really helps me feel connected to you guys because right now I'm sitting in a room by myself. And while I absolutely love working on this podcast and the blog and videos and all of that, it can be pretty isolating sometimes. And what I love is community and helping to build community. So definitely join the tribe if you haven't already. And it's also where we announce things that are coming up before anybody else hears. So, you know, we announce the Outdoor Voices event there. We have a really big event that's coming up. We have a couple events happening on the East Coast. So if you want to stay up to date on those things, definitely join the tribe so that you can know what's happening before everybody else. And also, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast already, I would love if you did that. Just keeps you in the loop when new episodes are coming out because I am going to be taking a break at some point this summer. I haven't decided exactly when, but this will just let you know when episodes aren't airing and when episodes are airing. It's the best place to do that. And as always, I would love if you guys left a five-star review or whatever star review you want to leave it. If you do have feedback for me, you know, I love hearing from you guys, whether it be in the tribe or on Instagram at The Healthy Maven or wherever you want to connect with me. I love hearing your feedback. I love hearing the episodes that you guys enjoy. And I love when you share the podcast with other people because the whole point of the show is to connect with each other and to hear other people's stories and to know that you're not alone. So when you share on your Instagram stories or on your main feed or on your blogs, it really, you know, it's not just about me feeling like I'm not alone in this, but there's so many other people who are affected by that. So just thank you so, so much to everyone who's done that and anyone who wants to do that in the future. I'm eternally grateful. And coming up next week on the show, we have Candice Kumai. She is going to be on talking about Japanese wellness and some traditions that she learned from her mom who is Japanese and some ways that you can incorporate some of these traditions into your daily life as well as like her amazing story which is crazy cool so I'm excited for you guys to hear that episode that's all I've got for you today have a good one bye guys 